stand standing for the reading of scripture. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Begin reading in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Friend of Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of Christ and his tender care for his sheep. We thank you that we serve a Jesus who is strong and kind, whom we can go to, and one who comes to us. Father, I pray that as we look now into this passage and we see the truths of your word, that you would help us to see the glory therein, that you would help us to see how much we can truly depend upon your Son and lean into what he is doing in our lives, no matter what's going on. So, Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, it seems as of late, I'm sure you're aware, uh, there's many, many trials have been going on in the midst of our body, whether it be sickness or car accidents, or surgeries, or cancer, and even the loss of some loved ones. Many, many trials are going on right now. now some of those have been expressed in our prayer request, as you have seen, but many have not. 
And I would encourage you to be praying for our body. But you know, I think it is especially in times like these that we often find comfort in the Psalms, just, just for the, the rawness that we find from the psalmist. It's like what Brent read this morning from Psalm 13 when David cries out, How long, O Lord? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The fact is there are times and seasons in our lives where it seems like God's providence is simply a hard pill to swallow. Where is He in the midst of all of this? And in those moments, much like what David does at the end of Psalm 13, we have to remind ourselves of God's unceasing and steadfast love towards His people. We have to trust that that is at work, even and maybe especially when we don't understand the big question of why. Why is this happening? Though David could not see it, he could not feel it in the midst of his circumstances, he ends Psalm 13 by saying, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. If ever there was a scripture that illustrates this truth, it's actually the one we're going to look at today. I can imagine the cry of, how long, O Lord, was very much on the lips of Mary and Martha and even Lazarus as he was suffering and passing from this earth. Where is the Lord? What is happening? And the way in which Christ does love this family and his disciples through this trial is not what anyone could have imagined or predicted. And that is often the case in our lives too. God's ways are higher than ours. And the way His love is is worked out in our lives is not predictable in the least. And we will see that here today. As we continue now in the Gospel of John, we are now in these, these transition chapters, so to speak. Uh, chapter 10, we saw last week that it concluded his, his public ministry in Judea. And then in chapter 13, when we get there, it will begin his last hours with his disciples leading up to his death. But chapters 11 and 12 are everything that happens in between those two events. And here in, in chapter 11, we are brought in to be witnesses to Jesus' greatest sign yet the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is meant to point to the the ultimate sign, which, of course, is his own resurrection. Now, the first 16 verses of this chapter are really the introduction to the story, to the event that John is is setting up. And he's, he's showing us that there is much more at work in this event than just the working of the miracle itself. The love of Christ is at work. And it is displayed in ways that no one would have predicted from our finite vantage points. So as we look at these opening verses today, we're going to 
see the, the surprising and unpredictable love of Christ shown in two different ways. First, towards this family that John introduces in verses 1 through 6, and then second, towards his disciples in verses 7 through 16. My hope for this entire chapter, and especially what we look at today, is that God would use it to grow in our lives a trust in His love that is always at work, to grow our faith in Him. That we would be able to let go of some of the control that we all try to maintain and the incessant need that we have to understand everything in our lives. And rather like David, no matter what we are feeling or walking through, that we would be able to just trust in his steadfast love that is at work. So let's start looking at this and let's start with this this family that John introduces here in verses 1 and 2. Read with me verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, this is the first time in this gospel that any one of these three are mentioned. In fact, the the story he references here about Mary anointing the Lord in preparation for his death actually doesn't come until chapter 12. By the way, John phrased this. It's not hard to deduce that he's, he's supposing some familiarity with who Mary is and what she did for the Lord. And this is not because his, his primary audience is Christian. Remember, he is writing to diaspora Jews, Jews that had been spread out because of the war, and he's, he's trying to reach them for Christ, for the gospel. But this goes to show us that, it's especially when it comes to Mary and her anointing of the Lord, is this story became widely known early on. As the early Christians were spreading the, the story of Christ, the gospel in the first century, Mary's actions were a standard part of that retelling of the story of Christ in the early church. You see it not only John, but you see it in Matthew 26 and in Mark chapter 14. Now, for clarity, because this can be a little bit confusing, you need to know that in the Gospels there are four different Marys. There's actually there's two Lazaruses as well. This is not the same Lazarus from Luke chapter 16. But there are four different Marys in the gospel. There's a fifth in the book of Acts, and there's a sixth in the book of Romans. So there's quite a few Marys in the New Testament. It's easy to mix them up. But just in the gospel of John, we will see those four. Uh, you, have, you have this Mary, who is Mary of Bethany, uh, sister to Martha and Lazarus. And then you, of course, have Mary, the mother of Christ. And then you have Mary Magdalene. She was the woman that Jesus cast out of her seven demons in Luke chapter 8, and she became one of Christ's most prominent followers. And then you have Mary, the wife of Clopas, and the mother of James and Joseph. Um, In fact, all three of those Marys are mentioned together in John chapter 19. It says this, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, first Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So you've got three Marys standing by the cross in John 19, but none of those three Marys are this Mary. This Mary is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany and who loved Christ dearly. 
In fact, the first time we see her in Jesus' ministry is in the very familiar story from Luke chapter 10. In the midst of Jesus' ongoing and busy schedule and ministry, uh, this family, particularly Martha and Mary, welcomed him into their home to serve him, to, to give him some rest and reprieve and some provisions. And I'm sure you remember when Martha is busy serving, she gets a little frustrated with her sister for just sitting at Jesus' feet, and she launches a complaint about Mary to Christ. But then Christ kind of unexpectedly rebukes her and says, Mary has chosen the good portion, and that will not be taken away from her. So quite clearly, Jesus had developed a, a deep friendship uh, with this family, a deep love for this family, not only the sisters, but their, their brother as well. And both of these sisters, though they were they're very different in their dispositions, they loved Christ, they trusted Christ, and they believed Christ. And for that reason, when their, when their brother Lazarus fell ill, their immediate response was to send Jesus a petition on his behalf. In a very real way, what we see here is a prayer of intercession. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, Many things about this short message show the, the intimacy and the closeness that existed between Christ and, and this family. One is just the mere fact that the sisters knew they could get a message to Christ. Uh, there was no doubt in their minds about the access that they had to him. They were clearly aware of where he was and, and how to find him. The second is, is how pithy this request is. In all actuality, there is no formal request, only, only information. But, but obviously, this was not just an, an FYI. It, it is a request. It's just implied. They're not just giving Jesus a status update here. There is hope attached that Jesus would respond to this news. This is, in fact, a plea for help. And the relationship that existed between Christ and this family allowed for a confidence that such a short message would be completely understood. And the third thing here is the way they identify Lazarus. They don't even use his name, but simply describe him as he whom you love. And they knew by that simple designation that Jesus would know exactly who they were talking about. I think it's informative, too, that they don't say, He who loves you is ill, but he whom you love. There's a, a surety, a, a confidence, and a knowing here of Jesus' affections and love for this man. But not only the sisters framing it this way, but John is wanting to establish this fact in the hearts of the readers as we see how Christ responds. He's establishing his love for this family. In fact, skip down and look at verse 5. Look at what John just inserts here to drive this home. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved this family. He loved these three followers of, he, of his a relational bond had formed between them to such a degree 
that John the Apostle was able to describe their relationship as one of love from Christ to these individuals. Now, I, I want you to think for a second about what John is doing here in the flow of this gospel. As John has been presenting Christ and, and God's cosmological purposes in redemption up to this point, it has all been framed in a love for the world. Not just the nation of Israel, but love for the whole world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But now there is a movement from the world down to the individual. God's speaking of, of love for individuals by name. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This individual is, love is introduced very intentionally on the heels of Jesus having just revealed himself in chapter 10 as the good shepherd. Over and over in chapter 10, Jesus had expressed several ways in which the love between the shepherd and the sheep existed. I know my own, and my own know me. I, I give them eternal life. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd leads his sheep out. And it all began with the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And then in the very next chapter, you have these individual sheep mentioned by name who know their shepherd and are known by their shepherd who love their shepherd, but more importantly, are loved by their shepherd. You see what John is doing here. The truths of chapter 10 are not meant to be left behind. On the contrary, they are meant to loom heavy over chapter 11, over everything that transpires in this story. Jesus is leading his sheep, and his love for the individuals of this family who, who he knows intimately by name is an illustration and a picture of his love and care for all of the sheep. It is an illustration of his love and care for, for you, you who believe and are followers of Christ. Jesus is not aloof in your life. He loves you. He knows you. He knows what you are going through. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your anxieties. He knows your fears. He knows your hopes. He knows all of that. And it's not just mere sentimentalism. This is what the Scripture is teaching. Jesus knows. And just as these sisters were confident of Christ's love for their brother and for them, so too can you be assured of Christ's love for you, you who follow Christ. And just as these sisters knew they had access to Him and their request would make it to Him, so too do you have access to Him at any time. You too know where He is and how to reach Him. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. And He has given you access to the throne of God. He is your access it is through His name that we come to Him. This is why we pray in the name of Christ that we may come and bring our petitions knowing that they will be heard. And like these sisters, your first response to trouble ought to be to go to Him. You don't even have to say much because He knows. But we are to cast our cares upon Him 
because he cares for us. And we will continue to see that on display through this story. He is the shepherd who cares for his sheep. Now, with all of that in mind, with that context of love established, let's look how Jesus responds to the initial report. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, he is obviously not saying that Lazarus is not going to die. He's not saying Lazarus is not going to go through death. Obviously he does. But rather, it's that he's not going to end in death. It is more of a statement of purpose. The purpose of this illness is not death with finality, but rather its purpose is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is very similar to what we saw back in chapter 9 when Jesus was asked why the man was born blind. When his disciples asked, was it, was it his sin or, or was it his parents? And Jesus responded, it was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Very similar idea is going on here with Lazarus. His illness had a purpose, and it was not death. It was God's glory. But this time, Jesus presses it a little bit further. Notice what he says. We take this for granted because of our lofty view of Christ. But he just told them that it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Putting his own glory on par with the glory of God. This is just as he said back to the, in chapter 5 to the Jewish leadership when he said God's purposes were that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus is again expressing his equality with the Father, his equality with God. But when we think about this language of the Son being glorified through it, that isn't merely to communicate that this is, this is happening just so he can be praised. He, he's talking about revelation. He, he, his glory is being revealed. It's being made manifest. We saw this in, in chapter 2 at the very first sign in Cana in Galilee. When Jesus changed water into, into wine, it says this, This is the first of a sign Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and it manifested His glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's what's going on here. His glory, the glory of God, is being revealed through him as he continues to work the works of the Father. God is glorified as the Son is glorified. But what is rather surprising about this, even for us, is that this is a, his response to the news that Lazarus is ill and to their sister's plea. Upon hearing this news, Jesus essentially redirects attention to himself. He does not send them consoling words. Mary, Martha, it will be okay. Lazarus is going to be okay. Nothing of the sort. Rather, he just makes a declarative statement about the purpose of this illness. That it does not lead to death, knowing full well that these two sisters were about to watch their brother die. 
And not only are his words surprising, but his actions are even more so. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? I think quite clearly John inserted verse 5 here. This, this clear statement of Jesus' love for this family in between what he says in verse 4 and in verse 6 so that we will not misrepresent or misinterpret Jesus' words nor his actions. Because without this, this clear, unambiguous statement about his love for them, it would be easy to conclude the opposite, that he is uncaring, that their situation matters not to him that he treats their petition as something that he will get around to if or when he has the time. But John phrased this in such a way that it is impossible to conclude that. In fact, verse 6 starts with the word so, or therefore, which tells us that verse 5 is the motivation for verse 6. Upon hearing this news, Jesus stayed two days longer because he loved them. Well, how do we make sense of that? Because everything in us would say the opposite. If Jesus really loved them, he would, he would run, not walk, to Bethany and heal his friend as soon as possible. Or, as we saw him do with the official son in John chapter 4, he doesn't even have to move. He, he could just speak a word. Go, your son will live. And he did. He could, he could do that again. But he doesn't do either of those things. He does the opposite. He doesn't speak a word of power. He doesn't start heading to Bethany. Rather, he delays for two days. And in so doing, he allows Lazarus to continue to suffer and to die out of love. And he allows these sisters to helplessly watch all of this, to watch their brother die out of love. It would seem that we are forced to conclude here that God has a very different view on what is loving than we do. It also seemed that God's priorities for life are often different than what ours typically are. Often we just want to be well. We want our life to go well, we want, we want to feel well, and we want our loved ones to be well. And while those things matter, I'm not downplaying it, and there, there's times and seasons when they are a reality, it, it is clear that God has a priority for us, for his, his sheep in particular, that is very different, that supersedes these things. And it is clear in this passage what that priority is. It is so that his people may see and know his glory. That we may see and know him rightly. You see, the most loving thing God can do for you is not to make you well in this world. It is to show you His glory. Because that's what we're made for. That is what humanity is ultimately made for, and therefore that is what humanity ultimately needs 
is God in all of His glory. And He reveals His glory to those whom He loves. Because love, true love, aims at the highest need and the highest good and the highest joy of its object. In the flesh, in our simple thinking, we sometimes think that, and believe that love is just giving someone more and more of what they want. Parents, if you try that with your children, you will destroy them. I promise you. You know better what they need than they do. And likewise, God knows better what we need than we do. Yes, there may be some temporary joy in the relief of suffering, but there is ultimate and everlasting joy in beholding and treasuring the glory of God above all earthly gain. And nothing teaches us that more than when we draw near to God in the midst of suffering. Nothing weans us from the cares of this world and amplifies our contentment in Christ more than we trust Him in the valley. It is our sufferings in this world that God uses to shape us and to mold us into His image and as we behold His glory through it. I am sure that every seasoned saint in this room has stories of when they have gone through something terrible that they would not trade for the world because of what God did through it. Because God did in their own hearts to grow them in their relationship with Christ in such a significant way that they can look back on that trial with, with joy. Through the trial, we come to know Christ all the more as we lean into Him when we have nothing else to lean on. Church, the reality is we need to, we need to align our priorities with God's priorities. Our priority in this life and in the next is to know Him in all of His glory. Indeed, we want our heartbeat to reflect that of the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He went on to express that his, his chief desire is that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Is that your heartbeat? Make no mistake about it. God has purpose for our trials. Every single one of them. They are all an opportunity to trust in His everlasting love and to behold His glory all the more. And we can learn that not, not just in the trials that we walk through personally, but also in the lives of God's people around us. As we will see here, this is, this is not just for the, the family, it's, it's for Jesus' disciples as well, and even by extension for us as we observe this in the passages of Scripture. Look with me at verse 7. It says, Then after this, after the two days, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. 
the attention now shifts back to Jesus' disciples. And like so many of the stories in, in John's gospel, they are mentioned at the front end of the event with, with Jesus establishing the lesson of what's, what's going to happen, and then we do not hear from them or about them for the rest of the story. Well, the same is true here. After verse 16, we will not hear from them for the rest of this chapter. But they are there, observing and learning, as we are. And here, after the two days is over, Jesus then tells them that it's time to go to Judea again. Now, Bethany is just, just two miles to the east of Jerusalem in Judea. Very, very close to Jerusalem. And given everything that just happened at the end of chapter 10, these disciples are more than a little worried about the wisdom and safety of this idea. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Clearly, the, the intensity of everything that happened in chapter 10 had had its impact on these men. They knew that, that going back there was a risk to his life. But it was also a risk to theirs. And that was on their minds, too. We, we know that because of Thomas's final remark. And by their language here, when they say, just now, it's clear that very little time has passed since the Jews tried to murder Jesus in the temple. And that was, that was fresh on their minds. So they give Jesus a little kickback. But then Jesus gives them a little more kickback. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered them, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. No doubt that these words are a little bit of a rebuke, because Jesus is, is doubling back on a lesson that he has already taught them when he healed the blind man not too long ago. In, in John 9, verse 4, we, we saw him say, he said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See, this is something that Jesus had already worked through with them. In, in, in the Jewish conception of time, uh, they, they saw the days as being divided into two segments of 12 hours between night and day. Now, obviously, that fluctuated with the seasons, but in general, they just, they just spoke of a full day as being 12 hours in length. And Jesus is, again, just using this proverbial metaphor about the day and the light to speak of his own time on earth. It may be the 11th hour, but night has not fallen. There is still time to do the works of the Father. His job on earth is not done. And his life will not be taken from him until the predetermined hour has come. Just as no man can change the hours of the day, no man can snuff out the true light of the world until it is time. But it's, it's obviously not just about him. This was also an assurance to his disciples who were on this mission with him. In, in the natural course of things, their association with him certainly could get them killed. And they knew that. Jesus' point is that their security is there for them while they are with him. As long as it is day, 
they will not stumble either. But then Jesus finishes this, this proverbial statement by, by breaking away from the, the natural manner of the metaphor. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Notice, notice how he changes it there. The problem turns now to a lack, not to a lack of external light, the light of day, but rather to a lack of internal light. By this, Jesus is redirecting their fears to a far greater threat than the darkness that exists around us in this world. He points them to the darkness that exists in the human heart. He brings back this theme, this cosmological problem of humanity, the darkness of the sinful human heart. Far greater should we, should any man, fear internal darkness than external darkness. The threat of not having Christ in us are far greater than anything that this dark world could throw at us. All who walk in that darkness, in the darkness of the heart, will stumble. And, and once again, Jesus is, is discipling his disciples. He's reorienting how they think about this world and what true danger really is. And now he's going to tell them what work he's talking about, what, why he's heading to Judea. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. You know, I, I love that the Bible is so honest in the way it portrays the disciples. Because these are truly not extraordinary men. They are, they are just normal people like me and you who often don't get it or, or often say things without really thinking through what they're saying. Anyone else have that problem? How, how many times do you respond to somebody very quickly and you think immediately, why did I say that? It's a pretty regular occurrence in my life. I think this is one of those moments for the disciples because you would think that after all this time, after everything that they've seen and everything that they heard, being first-hand witnesses of everything from Christ, this late in the game, his ministry is almost over, that at this point they would have learned to stop and think before they questioned Jesus. I mean, maybe, just maybe, Jesus understands how it works when somebody goes to sleep. And maybe it's a good idea to conclude that he's not saying Lazarus is taking a nap and I'm going to travel for three and a half days to go wake him up. Maybe. But praise God, the Lord is patient with us. And he patiently spells it out for these disciples. Look at verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Notice, no one informed Jesus of this news. This was quite clearly supernatural knowledge that he had, he was giving here. And I really believe this gives us insight, a little hint as to why the two days. What, what triggered Jesus' decision to go now? Why did he wait two days? Why not three days or, or just one day? What was he waiting on? 
He was waiting on Lazarus to die. Once he knew Lazarus had died, it was then that it was time to go. And in sharing this news with his disciples, Jesus makes another very surprising statement. He says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. See, this whole thing wasn't just for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It was also for his disciples. It's, it's, It's for us. He says, for your sake. But what is surprising is that he says, I am, I'm glad I was not there. He was, he was glad? What was it that made him glad? In, in fact, the word for glad here is the word rejoice. Why would, why would Jesus rejoice that he was not there? Now, to be clear, he was not glad about Lazarus' death or the suffering of his loved ones, the sisters. We will see that clearly. Jesus is not unmoved by the hard realities of our sufferings in this world. He is not calloused off to what we go through. And and that gets depicted beautifully as this unfolds. Yet at the same time, there is something greater. There is something more important than the suffering itself or even the alleviation of the suffering. Something that so pleases God that Jesus could say that he was glad. He rejoiced that he was not there to stop the suffering in the middle of this tragic situation. And he tells his disciples, it is so that you may believe. Now you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, the disciples already believed. Uh, We saw their confessions, all of their great confessions in chapter 1 of who they believed Jesus to be. We heard an explicit statement of their belief in chapter 2 when they saw the wedding miracle and, and it says his disciples believed in him. Why then does Jesus say here, so that you may believe? It is because belief is not a one and done reality in the Christian life. See, faith is not just binary. Certainly there is, there is a point in which one goes from having no faith to having faith, but that's just the beginning. It does not stop there. The Christian life is about, it's fundamentally about growing in our faith, growing in our understanding of who Christ is, and growing in our trust in Him. This is, in fact, what, what pleases God the most. As the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But God delights in our faith. Jesus can rejoice in this because he knows the faith of his disciples and the faith of this family is going to grow. That their trust in him and their knowledge of him is going to deepen. And God delights in that. He he does not delight in our sufferings. Do not misunderstand that. But he delights in and our faith that grows through them. And the the truth is, there is nothing that tests and proves and grows our faith like suffering does. Can you imagine for for these disciples how much more they trusted Christ after having walked through this with Him? They saw Him intentionally delay. They will watch Him weep with the sisters. They will see the reason for it all as His glory is displayed through the resurrection. 
they learned that Jesus does not do things without a purpose. And later, after the ascension, when they will face trial after trial after trial, they could take great confidence in his love and his purposes for them, even when they could not see what was going on. Because they knew he loves his sheep. He leads his sheep. He had solidified that in their hearts. And the same is true for you, dear Christian. Christ loves you. You cannot measure his love by what you are going through in life. That is an unfaithful measuring stick. It is not predictable in that way. But rather, you are to simply trust in his everlasting and steadfast love in all circumstances, knowing it is always at work. And knowing we won't always see why, but we will in glory. The explanation is coming. Like the glory that was revealed through this resurrection, there is a glory that is coming when everything will make sense at that point. But at this point, his disciples are certainly not getting it. And that's clear from this last comment. This is what I like to call courageously missing the point. Look at verse 16. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas' nickname was the twin. We we actually really don't know why. But this is the same Thomas who earned the nickname Doubting Thomas due to what transpires at the the end of this book. But here he he displays not doubt, but actually both, both his courage and his devotion to Christ, even if it was in the midst of showing that he'd completely and utterly missed the point. He and likely the rest of the disciples were stuck on the fact that going back to Judea was probably going to result in death. And so he resolves that he's he's ready to go, even if that means he's going to die. The lesson for them is still yet to be learned. But brothers and sisters, we need to take away from this that we we are not to begrudge the hand of providence in our lives or the circumstances in which God takes us into. Those things should never cause us to doubt the love of God. You want to understand the love of God, you look to the cross, not to your circumstances. You you may not see how, how certain things could possibly be in God's good plan for you or in those of the lives around you, but God knows exactly what each one of his sheep individually must pass through in order to wean us off the hopes and joys of this world and to solidify in our hearts the eternal hopes and joys in him. You've got to trust him in that. He knows knows what he's doing. Trust his love for you. And just as David did in Psalm 13, when God seems like he's nowhere to be found or is even hiding his face from you, you trust. You trust in his steadfast love. You rejoice in your salvation. You even sing to the Lord, knowing full well that he has dealt bountifully with you. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, hallowed be thy name. You have dealt bountifully with us. We are blessed above all to be the sheep of your pasture. Give us the grace and courage to just trust in your steadfast love, to rest in it, to marvel at your good character, and to continue to entrust our souls to a God who cares for his sheep. Thank you for who you are, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the song response. Here's